Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. One of the core insights of the Dharma is that in reaction to the inevitable disappointments of life, what the Buddha called the first noble truths, that we all are prone and subject to old age sickness, loss, grief, and we're even all prone to not getting what we want quite frequently in life. And I don't think anybody can really argue with that list. The Buddha noted that while all of those things are certainly unpleasant and create a lot of stress, the Buddha interestingly noted that suffering uh, is actually the product of craving to escape the pains of life, including the painful feelings. And it's the craving to escape that actually causes the real forms of dukkha. Specifically, the Buddha broke down the way we seek to escape in terms of first craving. We try to escape the sorrow, lamentation, grief, despair, the negative emotions and the negative experiences by the short-term pleasures, intoxicants, food, acquiring, and so forth. Another form of craving, he said, is for numbing, the craving to escape our conscious awareness of our experience, the craving for being disconnected from all of our feelings. He said the third way we try to escape is an obsession with becoming. It's actually the compulsion to self-improve. The idea that there's something about me that's lacking, not good enough, that I need to relentlessly change. I need to attain a different state of being, a different higher incarnation of myself, have become different. And that that craving for self-improvement, becoming better versions of ourselves, and so forth, that that is the way that we escape the pains of life, the discomforting emotions, and so forth. Adding to this list, the Buddha also says we have a tendency to cling to things that cause us suffering. We cling to short-term sensual pleasures. We cling to habits and routines. For example, some people, uh, if any of their routines get inconvenienced, we can't get our iced coffee or coffee in the morning if we can't go to something that we've developed a reliance on, then we suffer. We suffer if we cling too rigidly to our views and opinions about the world. The stickiest of all the things we cling to is Atava Upadana, which is our thoughts about ourselves, our fixation on narrating our life and analyzing how we compare with others. There's a whole list in the Sabasata Sutta. What's happened to me? Uh, why? What will happen to me in the future? How do I compare to others? What is the nature of my true self? And so forth. All these 
self-fixated thoughts, the Buddha says, are fundamental forms of suffering. So again, to summarize, in life there's painful experiences and feelings, and those we could survive were it not for the fact that we crave to escape them. We crave through our addiction to short-term pleasures, our craving for numbing, our craving to self-improve, to become different than what we are, as well as our clinging to routines, views, and opinions, and especially beliefs about ourselves. So let's look a little deeper at that. In contemporary, the works of Gilbert and, and Killingsworth at Harvard showed that 50% of our life, we are involved in what's called default mode operation of the brain which is a fancy way of saying we are generally lost in wandering thought. And I'll read from what they say, something, uh, people are considerably unhappier while their minds are wandering than when focused on their current activity. Mind wandering is generally the cause, not a consequence of our unhappiness. I'll say that again, mind wandering, read that again, mind wandering is the cause, not the consequence of our unhappiness. So as uh, one might uh, conclude from reading this wonderful paper, a wandering mind is an unhappy mind, which was the result of their massive clinical study. Um, if we are uh, in a beach chair by a beach in a warm location, listen, uh, in front of the waves, but thinking relentless thoughts about what's going to happen to me in the future, what, how do I compare with others and so forth, I'm more likely to be unhappy than if I'm in a dentist chair getting root canal, but at least I'm focusing attention on the actual experience. Because once again, the wandering of the mind away from what is present to uh, ideations that are completely divorced from awareness of our environments uh, leads to unhappiness. Now, what kinds of thoughts does the mind wander to that cause so much suffering? Well, the insights continue in a wonderful clinical paper called The Default Mode Network and Self-Referential Processes in Depression. And that paper points out that the default mode network of the brain is characterized by self-referential functions, i.e. thinking about oneself. And then they conclude activity in the default mode is reduced during non-self-referential goal-oriented tasks. In other words, when we stop thinking about ourselves and we start focusing on what we're actually doing, we tend to suffer quite less in life. Being lost in thought about ourselves, we're less happy, we're more stressed. Why is this? Well, if we understand uh, from the neural perspective, the circuits in the brain that are responsible for self-referential thought 
what they call the default mode operation, is a neural pathway that involves three key regions. The, um, what is it? I have to remember. Oh yeah, the inferior parietal, which is where we think about ourselves, our bodies, and we have emotional interpretations of experience. The ventral medial circuit, which is self-oriented emotions, and the amygdala, which is the essentially the part of the brain that is the alarm system in the brain that lets us know that something important, especially related to our survival, has happened. So in other words, when we are engaged in self-referential thought, emotional concerns about self are, very, are directly linked to the brain's alarm system, which amplifies emotional experience, which leads to stress and leads to unhappiness. <clears throat> the default mode operation of the brain, self-referential thought, it boils down to this idea I'm going to wind up in a, bad, in a bad place unless I change something about myself. Um, the Buddha, in a wonderful sutta, the Loka Sutta said, the world is burning, uh, afflicted by the disease of self-centeredness. And self-fixation creates an obsession with changing oneself. I'll say that again. Self-fixation creates an obsession with changing oneself. I think that's a brilliant insight. And then uh, he concludes that suit by saying the awakened one is one who abandons becoming, abandons the idea of I have to change. I have to become uh, I have to steer myself to this different place. Now that doesn't mean we're not going to change, but it lets go of the idea that I have to be the one on ch in charge of how I change. So how do we do that? I'm going to talk about this. Um, before we get there, let's look at some of the reasons why the drive, the relentless drive of self-improvement, the self-improvement regime, as it were, actually doesn't pay off. Well, the first is, of course, uh, anyone from their own experience will know that when we get caught up in a uh, drive, for instance, when I get a better job, when I get an apartment, for instance, when I get an apartment, then everything will be okay. But what happens when we get a, a new apartment? Well, then the thoughts become when I get nice furniture, or when I get a partner to share my apartment with, or when I get a cat. So craving in and of itself, as the Buddha noted, doesn't exactly lead to fulfillment. It just leads to craving continuing in other directions. But let's look at it from a more, because uh, sometimes when I just explain things from the Buddhist perspective, it doesn't sound as convincing as when I explain it from the um, perspective of contemporary therapeutic uh, insights. So the more we strive to improve ourselves, the more we review ourselves using the default mode operation of the brain. 
And the default mode operation of the brain never says, I'm doing okay, or I've arrived, or I finally reached my destination. In fact, the default mode operation is always about projecting our sense of self into the future based on whatever underlying emotion that's occurring. And generally, when we are thinking obsessively about ourselves, the underlying emotion is one of dissatisfaction, unhappiness, vulnerability, loneliness, etc. Very few people stop and think and review their lives when they're feeling joyous and happy. They generally tend to be doing something to enhance that joyousness and happiness. So when we tend to reevaluate ourselves and how we're doing, we're almost invariably doing it with an underlying affect state of disappointment. And the default mode will simply use the underlying affect, which is something's wrong and the story about oneself. And it will say, uh, I'm doing it wrong. So for example, classic default mode operation, after we go through a breakup, we're feeling sad. The sadness is uncomfortable. Default mode operation switches on. And then what happens is the self-projection becomes I will always be alone. No one will ever love me. I am doomed to spend my life without a happy relationship. Suppose we've had an argument with a friend and we feel uh, poorly treated. So there's a feeling underlying of anger. And then the default mode operation kicks in and it says, That'll teach me for trusting other people. I should always keep my guard up. I was wrong to ever allow myself to do X, Y, or Z, and so forth. Invariably, um, whatever the affect state beneath the emotion is, we try to escape it through default mode operation, and then it becomes far worse. The thoughts proliferate. The second thing is that our flawed sense of self is stored in a region of the brain, the right orbital frontal, that's impervious to the types of, um, to, to the ways that we try to build up our sense of improvement. So many of us, for example, when we are seeking some form of self-improvement, we'll do things like the, I read that the most common New Year's resolutions are all examples of, by the way, becoming. The most common is I'm going to diet or eat better. That's 71% of all resolutions. Uh, in There's also daily exercise, lose a specific amount of weight, save more, or live within a budget. <laughs> These are the most common New Year's resolutions. And guess what? None of those New Year's, those resolutions, those bids to so-called improvement, register at all in the right orbital frontal. The right orbital frontal, which holds our sense of emotional wounds from early attachment schemas in life, the feelings of being unlovable, our sense of core shame and all that. The only thing it responds to is building up positive affiliations with others. That's really the, the key 
event in life, but improving uh, monetary success, status, external approval, and so forth, do not in any way affect that area of the brain. So in many ways, our relentless drive to self-improvement always misses the mark in terms of creating a fundamental change in how we have the way we conceive of ourselves. Third reason it doesn't work. Um, terror management theory. I love terror management theory. It's a, a robust sub-branch of psychology. Terror management theory shows that a core motivation for all our endeavors, including self-improvement, is to distract ourselves from remembering our own mortality. But unfortunately, self-improvement regimes don't not in any way, shape, or form actually alleviate our fear of uh, old age, sickness, death, loss, and so forth. All they do is temporarily distract us. And then once again, whenever we're finished with the regime, we're still back in the same vulnerable bodies subject to old age, sickness, and death. Four, even when our goals are worthy, whether they are to eat healthier or to exercise more or to uh, uh, do volunteerism, which would be great, but even when the goals are worthy, they're so easily sidetracked by emotionally driven behaviors. And so we almost invariably set ourselves up to fail because this idea that I have to lose weight, eat healthier, um, exercise every day and so forth. The moment we fail to live up to these goals, then default mode operation kicks in and evaluates us as once again, even failing more than we already in the past. So additionally, I would add that striving to attain a future state where something about me has that I've decided is improved so that I will feel better about myself invariably recreates and validates and re-ingrains the sense that something about me is insufficient, that something about me right now is not good enough. And, and so the, the very foundation that these regimes are based on is this idea that I am somehow lacking. And starting from such a place almost invariably means we'll wind up right back there. So in contrast, the spiritual path foregoes striving and this idea of trying to reach a future state of being. And it turns mindfully to what is actually present in us, greeting it with non-judgmental awareness. It is, um, in this way, very, very radical. Our consumer culture preys on our flawed sense of self. And it answers this through a uh, uh, creating a regime of consumerism. I have to take a course. I have to enlist in some kind of, I have to buy a book. 
I have to go through some kind of uh, program with some kind of coach and so some something. In other words, the basic underlying message is that there's something missing, inadequate about me that I have to pay, spend money on uh, to acquire. There's some, for example, there's some tool or insight that I have to uh, put out money towards so that I, once I acquire that, I become uh, a better, more insightful human being. And that's the way that uh, change has occurred. In contrast, um, we're talking about a self-acceptance-based program or a self, not even program, a self-acceptance-based path. And we're contrasting this with the, self, the, the self-improvement regime. In our culture, acceptance is very often confused with resignation. The idea that if we accept ourselves, that we're giving up and that somehow that means change is not going to occur, that spiritual growth is not going to occur. But actually, almost all of the growth that happens in one's life is actually founded upon the primary moment of self-acceptance. The alcoholic who changes profoundly in the course of their recovery starts out with a recognition that they can't drink safely and they can't and they accept that about themselves and it's from that acceptance and that simple acknowledgement that their growth becomes viable acceptance based change puts aside the craving uh, to find some way to get rid of our feelings so that we'll attain this perfect state in the future where we only think happy thoughts or we're only peaceful and so forth. It's not a spiritual bypass. The fundamentals of self-acceptance uh, and acceptance-based change rests on observing our feelings as they are as a natural outgrowth of our circumstances. So in many ways, it involves a change. Um, before we practice self-acceptance, we will say, I want to travel, but I'm too anxious about traveling. So that leads to the conclusion that Either I have to not travel because I'm anxious about it, or I have to get rid of my anxiety about travel before I can do that. And that will lead me to, I don't know, go out and try to get a prescription for a benzodiazepine or to drink or to do something that alleviates anxiety. But acceptance-based change doesn't do either. It's the... the uh, in many ways, the uh, shift is from I want to travel, but I'm too anxious about traveling. It shifts it to I want to travel and I'm anxious about it. In other words, I am going to travel and I am anxious about it and I'm going to accept both 
both. I'm not going to use my anxiety as a way to stop me from traveling. I'm going to acknowledge and accept my anxiety and I'm going to travel or I'm going to, it could be, I'm going, I want to uh, be uh, content in my own body, but I feel uh, I don't like the way I, I look or something. We accept both but we don't give in to the regime where we have to act on the behest of our feelings. In the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha says, one observes feelings as they arise and pass. One accepts feelings exist, and one lives with them from a detached, non-clinging perspective. In other words, we observe we allow feelings to be there, we relate to the feelings, but we don't try to change them. On the other hand, the Buddha continues as a, when it comes to self-thought. He says, what ideas are unfit for our attention? Ideas that lead to the arising of craving, ignorance, and becoming. These are thoughts about oneself. They create a thicket of views, a wilderness of views, a contortion of views. They all lead to suffering. So to summarize, self-acceptance rests on putting aside our reliance on short-term pleasures to escape our feelings. They bring a non-judgmental awareness to our feelings. It's about detaching from one's relentless self-evaluation, comparing ourselves to others. And it's about developing positive affiliations with people in our life, but not with an idea that I have to change. The change happens naturally as a result of the acceptance of how we feel and the putting aside of this relentless self-evaluation. It's not self-directed change, but change happens as a natural result. A first step of detaching from our automatic self-oriented thoughts is to observe how convoluted all of our self-oriented th thought processes are. One of the ways to do this is to write down without any guidance or editing, the string of thoughts that emerge from default mode operation when we think about ourselves, I did this as an exercise for you while I was writing and putting together my notes for this talk. I stopped and I just said, okay, I'm gonna think about myself. Even I know that I'm doing this as a dangerous exercise for you. <laughs> because I want you to see how dangerous it is. I stopped what I was focusing my attention on and just allowed my thoughts about myself to start up. And so what I did was I wrote whatever came to mind about myself. And this is what came to mind. Damn it, I have to finish this talk. It's Monday night. It's after midnight. Still my talk is unfinished. But... I have to get to bed and I need to get to bed because I'm not, I didn't get enough sleep last night and I want to start waking up earlier. 
but if I did more cardio and more exercise, maybe I'd fall asleep faster. But I'm already exercising every day. It's more than I ever have, and it's not helping me fall asleep earlier. Nor is it helping me lose any weight. Ugh, I've got to start eating carbs. <laughs> so that's what immediately, and I'm a, I'm a damn Buddhist pastor, and this is what immediately emerges from my brain the moment I turn it towards self-oriented thought. In other words, if we get any detachment from default mode operation, what we immediately see is that thoughts invariably are self-contradictory, fatalistic, meandering, and punishing. That was my conclusion. Self-contradictory, fatalistic, meandering, and self, oh, and punishing. So, in other words, the idea that this faculty of the brain, self-referential thinking, default mode, which leads, as we know from the Harvard study, to the most suffering in life, that is a, directly connected to the amygdala, that is directly has a proneness to project catastrophizing thoughts about oneself into the future. The idea is I should turn to that to guide me to a better sense of self is clearly not the path. So, one of the tools I use is to give self-oriented thought a name. What does that mean? Well, when my thoughts about myself at times do kick up and they will not be put aside by focusing on what uh, I'm actually doing at any given moment because focusing on whatever we're doing switches off self-referential self thought. It's called task-positive behavior. But sometimes the thoughts about oneself, one's default mode operation is too strong. It will not be silenced by focusing attention on what we're doing. And so comes to bear, I will name the inner voice that is essentially wants to churn out something about myself. And I generally call that voice the judge because it's invariably judging me. And so I say, hello, judge. Why do I do that? Well, because if we give the name to the circuit, the products of the circuit of the brain that is relentlessly uh, bringing back our uh, attention to inner chatter. If we give it a name, it is easier to detach from the thoughts, to view them as these thoughts are not me. These are just products of the brain. And indeed, the default mode operation of the brain is just one of many circuits. It doesn't define us. It's not who we are. When we are lost in thought about what's going to happen to us in the future, or whether we're doing a good enough job in life, or whether we are okay as human beings, or whether we're on the right path and all that, when we are caught up in that, that's not definitive of our core self. All it is, is one of many, many circuits in the brain it's essentially just a byproduct of one very old circuit, the default mode, and one that is not in any way um, 
our highest sense of purpose, nor is it the one, nor is it circuits that lead us to any particularly healthy destination. So anyway, that's some of tonight's thoughts about the distinguish, distinguishing self-acceptance from uh, self-improvement regimes. And I uh, hope that something in there was worth your attention. And now what we're going to do is do a meditation that builds up our, our ability of accepting our state of being. And so uh, I'm going to encourage you to just find a really comfortable position. And, um, oh, I should also mention that as a Buddhist pastor, I do everything by donation. If you are capable and interested in supporting my work, the uh, Venmo is Dharma Punks with an X NYC. Of course, if you're stretched by or financially stressed by um, what's been going on, totally understand, no worries. But if you're if that's uh, something that you're capable of, uh, thank you for your support. And now let's just find a comfortable seated position and uh, let's try to come into stillness by closing our eyes. If you don't like to close your eyes when you meditate, uh, just find a very solitary object and uh, right before you, uh, looking down sometimes uh, at the ground or unfocusing and just staring into space without um, uh, focusing on any object. So either a very still object that like a, a candle or uh, a window or a plant or uh, just focusing off into nothingness. When I used to practice in uh, Zen, they'd have us uh, sit and face a wall that was about uh, a foot or so away. But I prefer the Theravadan model of closing my eyes and coming into stillness by just settling the body. And so starting with the top of the head, just bringing awareness to the forehead and seeing if there's anything, uh, any way we can release any held contraction in the forehead, releasing any tension And then bringing attention to the eyes and uh, 
encouraging the eyes to settle in the eye sockets, like they're floating in two warm pools of water. When the eyes settle, the mind generally follows. Releasing any tension in the tongue, so just allowing it to settle. And if it feels comfortable, encouraging the mouth to either find a very unforced half smile, or if that feels inauthentic, just allowing the mouth to relax but not be pinched in any way, so the corners of the mouth are far apart, no clenching in the jaw, just releasing all of that habitual tension and then <clears throat> making sure the head is balanced nicely over the, the body and then releasing any tightness in the neck muscles And if the throat feels tight, just imagine you could massage and soften and release any tightness there. It's helpful to rotate the shoulders up and back to, and then dropping them to open up the chest so that there's a lot of room to receive the breath. opening up the chest cavity, breathing fully into that region, expanding and then releasing long, slow exhalations allow the mind to settle. bringing attention to the <clears throat> abdominal region, the base of the vagal nerve, and just allow the belly to expand smoothly with the inhalation. And then as we release the inhalation, just softening the belly. Abdominal breathing, soft belly breathing, the belly expands with the in-breath and releases with the exhalation. Again, the exhalations are long and smooth. The longer the exhalation, the more the mind settles. releasing any tension in the buttocks and that region so that we're fully sinking into the chair or cushion 
releasing any tightness in the thighs, just allowing this, the buttocks and thighs to fully release and just ground us into whatever is supporting us. And then continue releasing down the legs and allowing the feet to make a nice, fully restful, complete contact with the ground. And then bringing the same process of releasing to the arms, starting with the shoulders and going down the arms, releasing any tension there, making sure especially that we're not holding the hands or arms in, in an awkward position, make them just totally release any state, just let them fall into whatever posture they are in. And just bring awareness to whatever sensation is predominant in the present moment, letting go of any desire to do anything, to fix anything, to solve anything, to take care of anything, and just bring your awareness to whatever sensation is most predominant, most forefront, and just observe it without changing anything. It might be a sound, it might be a sensation in the body, a shift of feelings in the front of the torso. It might be that your attention is jumping about it might be an unsettling feeling of energy or tiredness, lethargy, lethargy. Whatever we are actually experiencing, just bring our attention to it. 
without taking any of it personally, without adding any story about what it means. If we're feeling distracted, difficult to focus attention, the mind keeps jumping back to thoughts about the past or future concerns or worries, just note it and just bring awareness back to whatever sensations are actually occurring right now. But we're not going to judge any of the sensations. Mindfulness is simply bringing awareness just allowing feelings to arise and pass, body sensations to arise and pass, sounds to arise and pass. Not changing anything and just greeting our internal experience from the perspective that nothing is wrong, even if the feelings are unpleasant, or unclear, just bringing a complete non-judgmental open awareness to whatever we're experiencing, putting aside all thoughts about ourselves and just observing the sensations of our internal experience. Nothing is wrong with how we feel. There are no bad feelings. There are no bad emotions, just observing from a welcome, welcoming but detached awareness changing nothing, putting aside all of the things we normally escape to. worries about the future, the past, just being with our internal experience.
Now for the last moments of the uh, a portion of the meditation, I'd like you to bring to mind something that you would like to do, not to improve yourself, not to be in any way as part of any regime of of uh, self-improvement or becoming some sense of a better person, but just something that you would like to do. But in some ways, we are hesitant because there's feelings of fear or worry or self-doubt. So it could be a desire to uh, play music. Dance. Develop an, a new creative outlet. A desire to travel somewhere, a desire to fulfill some old yearning. But we are hesitant to do so because of the, we feel anxious, worried, concerned. So just bring awareness to whatever it is you would like to do and just feel the feelings of doubt underpinning or standing in the way of this goal and just see if we can be with and acknowledge the difficult affects that make it challenging. Just observe them. Accept them as they are. But now the acceptance becomes sure, I feel scared, anxious, worried, concerned. And that's okay. That doesn't mean I. have to escape these feelings. And it doesn't mean I have to obey these feelings. I just have to accept. 
but to do or to fully enjoy my life. There will also be negative affects, difficult feelings as part of the journey. I don't have to get rid of them. I don't have to change myself. I don't have to become a better person. There's nothing about me that is incomplete or unlovable. So at this point, I'm going to ring the bowl and um, just take your time, no rush. Just when you hear the sound, as slowly as you'd like, just bring your awareness to a mindfully balanced state where you're still aware of what you're feeling your internal, your internal experience, as well as being aware of what's happening around you. So, uh, in summary, the difference between uh, self-improvement and self-acceptance as means to change, the underpinnings of self-improvement is that there's something wrong with the way I feel. There's something wrong with me. 
and I have to achieve something. I have to attain something. I have to acquire something. I have to realize something. I have to become something different so that I don't feel these feelings. And that's, and I have to direct the change. Whereas self-acceptance is, there's nothing wrong with the way I feel. It's an inevitable outcome. Feelings are inevitable outcomes of experiences, conditions. And my job is not to escape my feelings or to change them, just to observe them. And then to do whatever I see that brings peace of mind in my life without this idea that I need to change or become better. And I need to simply continue to observe what is in the internal experience without relying on the self-evaluation stories that obfuscate the basic truth that my internal experience is just the inevitable uh, results of the experiences that have been contained in my life. And in accepting the feelings, the change that happens is both natural and a product based on coming into alignment with one's uh, authentic, true experience and self without abandoning it and without judging it. So uh, anyway, I'm going to finish the stream there. And... Um, that's the kind of, that's yes, what I'm thinking stop, of right now. Stop. And uh, now we have time for any thoughts, any questions, anything you'd like to talk about. And um, if any of you in the, also have any, I, any thoughts about New Year's Eve, if you would prefer the uh, meeting to be either in the evening, like at the normal time, 7 p.m. Eastern, or if you prefer it to be later uh, on New Year's Eve, like at around 10 or 11, leading right up to New Year's Eve, uh, to midnight, I should say, do write down uh, or let me know in any way you'd like through a Facebook or writing the DPXNYC at Gmail, and because uh, just would like to to New Year's Eve in the way we've done in the past, which has always been really in, uh, enjoyable the normal way. Emily's already written that she'd like it if we do the normal thing. So uh, do you feel uh, encouraged? Right. So let's go to Bob. Okay. I'm going to ask to mute Bob. Are you there, Bob? Yes, I am. Uh, Bob T here. Josh, I just want to start off by thanking you so much. Um, it, it's first of all, it's a, pr a privilege for me to uh, to be here to be speaking with you. I, I want to say that these talks have um, been such a high point during 2020. And um, I think I first came across you 
when I had heard you a few years ago on the One You Feed podcast, and then I found my way to your site. And um, I know you said we shouldn't be running out and buying books to self-improve, but I will say your book on subscribe. I'll put a plug in for that. <laughs> Unashamedly, it was wonderful. Um and gosh, you hit it out of the park for me tonight. It was like you read my mind. Um, and what what came what came to mind was um, I think you helped illuminate the little wrinkle because so much with me is is the thinking, the thinking, and. Um, and I love how in past talks you've even talked about the science behind it and the right side of the brain doesn't know time. So events that happened are continually happening. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'm, I'm turning 50 this year and in, in some way, you know, I'm still the kid Yay! whose dad died at five years old, you know, mm -hmm. so I'm still processing that. Um, and not to make light of the COVID, but, um, you know, in a way, a few years ago at the age of 47, I went through my own little, um, whirlwind. I was downsized after a long stretch in a particular corporate job and area um, and went back to school and pursued something I always wanted to. And and now I'm in a job that's, that's great and my brain is firing, so I'm engaged. Um, instead of looking forward like I would normally fixate on, uh, the feelings of rumination are of the past few years and you know, wow, I'm okay now, but gee, I really, um, um, you know, my savings really dwindled or why did this happen and not have, so I, I'm trapped in, I, it's easy to get trapped in the thinking, the thinking piece. Um, I think the, the, the thought you put out that the the change is happening to me so i'm not the one orchestrating the change i think that was very important um to highlight but uh you know and the last thing i'll say i didn't want to let the pandemic go to waste so i took up surfing um and i went back to another no. class another school so i've got a this is the 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 where the rubber meets the road for me. It's it's just it's always a battle, uh, and I think it's that kid inside who at five said, "I don't know what this event means. My dad died, but we better have our act together and never stop doing stuff." And I'm aware of it, but I can't think myself out of you know that feeling so not to drone on but it is december and it's also a month of reflection um and it's probably no coincidence i you know i have another aa i have an aa anniversary i'm 21 years sober this year so i threw a lot out there but the, the heart of it is really to say thank you the sound of your voice is very soothing what i will take away is that it's all happening without me having to orchestrate anything mm. so i'll stop with that um have a have a wonderful holiday everyone and i will try to turn my brain off mm. thank you bob actually um it's interesting when people say my the sound of my voice is relaxing i can listen to a fraction of the talks before i put them up and 
I always reel back at horror at the sound of my voice. It sounds like uh, the recording invariably sounds like, uh, for me, uh, something akin to, uh, you know, the scratching of a of chalk on a blackboard. Um, but yes, actually, uh, I work with quite a lot of people who have had attachment figures die when they were very young. And it's um, one of the... Uh, clear results of an attachment loss of that magnitude at such an age is that the child doesn't understand that the attachment loss is not their fault. The child in some way feels uh, in some way abandoned and unlovable or a, a degree of, of, of uh, sense that something they did was wrong. Uh, as well as it's also concomitant in a later adult life with uh, a great need for um, self-reliance, as well as a, a tendency to have very interesting anxiety disorders. Uh, some people will suddenly in their adult life after early attachment losses become very frightened of uh, <clears throat> driving, traveling alone, doing things, because there's this fundamental lack of, at times, of a secure base. So in many ways, um, I, I am familiar with the attendant affects associated with such a loss um, from my work as pastor. So um, let's go to Jean, who's next, and then Melissa. So, Jean, I'm going to ask them. Hi. Hi, Jean. Hi, Josh. How are you? Thank you so much. Um, I just want to start off with saying I get so nervous when I'm speaking. <laughs> I feel like my heart is just racing. Um, I loved, loved this talk. I mean, I love all your talks, but this one in particular. Um, you know, I am... Um, <laughs> I feel like my head is like a washing machine a lot of the times, you know, and I love uh, that you are vulnerable enough to say, you know, this is what was going on in my head because I often find with, you know, Buddhist teachers or anyone who, you know, in any sort of, um, you know, that kind of role, uh, we, we can put you up on pedestals and think, well, that must never happen to Josh, you know? So thank you for sharing, you know, you, you, you're human like the rest of us, you know? And, um, you know, I was just thinking when you were saying you gave it a, a, a voice, you know, you'd say, hello, George. And, and, and I love that. And, and I was kind of laughing because I was thinking, I can't even imagine if I like talked back to that voice I feel like it would be like hello I've been waiting for you, <laughs> you know? it would have like this like David Attenborough accent or something but um you know I love that I have a friend who does that uh she's a yoga teacher in Dublin and she she has for each you know when the one that's telling her she's too fat she'll say oh the fat cow is telling me I'm fat today or <laughs> the one that's telling me I'm not making enough money oh the the money one is out today you know and um you know, I feel like if you just walked up to a normal person and said that, they'd be like, wow, you know. Um, 
but you know, I really, I, I love that, that you can just, you can do that. Um, and just quickly, um, you know, I've, I've, uh, you know, like everybody else, you know, I've been dealing with a lot of, uh, just loneliness, you know, and, um, I've been going out for my walks every day and, and, and I'm also Irish. So I love chatting to people. Like mm-hmm. that's where I get me energy, you know, the whole lot. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, I have to kind of gauge people like, does, does this person? So it's like, I'll go up to people with dogs and babies. I'm like, they're the safe people, you know, I can stop and have a chat. And, um, in any event, I've been going mad to get a dog and filling out all these forms, adoption forms and ringing shelters and just, you know, obsessing, like getting on my phone all the time, checking me emails, not sleeping. Um, and, um, you know, because I'm in the program, I feel like people are just thrown the, 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 the um, you know, oh, just turn it over, turn it over. I mean, that's easier said than done. You know, so, um, you know, it was just lovely to hear you because I feel like now I can just slow down and know that, yeah, I do want to get a dog, you know, but it's not going to get rid of that loneliness. You know what I mean? It might help a little bit, but I'm living, we're all living through a pandemic and it just is what it is and, and it will change, you know. So thanks, Josh. It was great to hear you. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. And of course, I mean, it's in there, it's um, what uh, feeling of loneliness is the m- single most activating, triggering uh, condition to create a sense of distress and also a sense of uh, craving to alleviate. And um, uh, part of one of the ways to alleviate craving even though it doesn't mean you're alleviating the idea that you want a dog but alleviating the thinking about the what's called the preoccupation with it is just to notice first when does the preoccupation come up is it at night is it when we feel disconnected is it when uh whatever the when we become preoccupied with something, what we're trying to do is regulate our affects through obsessing with trying to take control or to um, uh, get something. And the underlying belief is that I can't be with whatever feeling is precipitating the uh, fixation. Even if it's a healthy fixation, it could be a desire to, um, uh, connect with people or it could be a desire to uh, get a dog, which is fine or, or whatever. But w- the key is to find whatever feeling is beneath it and just turn to it, greet it, acknowledge it, whatever's, whatever is beneath it in the body. And then to sometimes to turn and embrace what our life already has right here and now to reflect on those people that are available to bring them to mind, to reflect on all the, what, you know, that which is already available to us so that we're not um, allowing the fact that there's an uncomfortable feeling to create then a story that there's something missing 
that the fact that I don't have a dog right now means that my life is not complete. And, you know, we can have a dog, but also have a dog from the sense that our life is enriching and embraceable as it is. Like someone who is going through the pandemic without a relationship, they might understandably want a relationship, but starting from the place of there's something wrong uh, creates an underlying desperation that then turns into fixation and preoccupation. So our, our, we want to pivot and focus on what is available to us so that we're going hopefully at it, not from a place of there's a deficit or a lack in my life, but right, my life already has a lot in it and I can add more. Thank you for that. And uh, Melissa, how are you, Melissa? Hi, Josh. Hi. Good to be here with you guys. Blessings to everybody. Gosh, man, I love your approach to this. Um, I know we're just bombarded. You know, you talked about consumerism, but advertising, media, you know, articles of like 10 tips to be better at this or whatever. Oh, it's just so exhausting. Like, <laughs> there is some quote, like, in a world that profits off your, our insecurities or something, it's like a radical act to love yourself or something like that. But mm. um, so I just love this. I think we need more of this. <laughs> and yeah, I really like your tips are so practical. I mean, on so many levels, it's wonderful. But like each week I, I implement, you know, these these tips and tools. And I'll just, I'll try to be quick, but like, I went through, oh my gosh, a breakdown a few years ago, alcoholic bottom, I think a spiritual emergency or crisis is sometimes called, I don't know how you feel about that, but like spiritual awakening in my life just completely crashed and burned and um, humiliating. Um, I lost the custody of my daughter. It's sorry. I don't want to be, I don't want to be too mm. much. Of like, but I really feel like I had to rebuild myself. My, my ego was like shattered. Um, and one of the ways that helped me, I mean, I just went on this healing journey. Like I'm going to try as much as I can, but like um, affirmations and mantras and like reconditioning my thinking to be more, because I mean, I felt so much shame Um yeah, just like, I love and accept myself, just like as a daily practice, like I am connected to everyone and everything or things like that. Like I belong everywhere I am because I felt like such an outsider, um, loneliness, all that stuff. And it was just, it's been immensely helpful to me. Um, and I, so anyway, I guess the question would be, what are your thoughts on things like, affirmations mantras or when they talk about like reprogramming the subconscious mind or neuro I guess neuro linguistic programming would fall in that maybe um what are your thoughts on on those approaches well this the same reason that um mantras and prayers work uh is also the way that affirmations work which is essentially you can't be thinking um, these mantras, which are fine, um, 
at the same time while thinking default mode operation thoughts of self-evaluation, self-judgment, and projecting what is going to happen to you in the future. So in other words, while we're reciting, reciting a mantra, like I'm connected to everyone and everything, or there is nothing wrong with me, or I love you, keep going, or may I be happy, peaceful, free of suffering. The whole point is that those thoughts, one, are uh, associated with calm states, but even more importantly, they're keeping out the kinds of thoughts that activate the amygdala and are self-prepondering. The kinds of self-prepondering or uh, self-retriggering thoughts are invariably speculation about self, like how we compare to other people, what, you know, whether we're doing well or not, what's going to happen to us in the future, and so forth. So the, the, the beauty of any mantra is that it's preventing us from from falling into default mode operation. So they're totally fine. In terms of does, does neural NLP or do uh, mantras change the um, underlying subconscious or unconscious beliefs about oneself? No, they don't because uh, core beliefs of self predate language. They're from early attachment experiences. Uh, they are uh, they are based on really early emotional wounds, and they predate the development of language. And they're sustained in regions of the brain that do not have language centers. So, the what what are called schemas or internal working models, which are the core. Uh, where, where our beliefs, our unconscious beliefs about whether we're lovable, good enough, whether we deserve love, whether we are safe in the world, all those unconscious emotional beliefs are not held in language centers. They are held actually in regions of the brain that are experiential, that are based on actual experiences from really early formative events. And so... Uh, as uh, many clinical psychologists have pointed out, they don't change despite the things we say to ourselves. Uh, the only thing that repetitive thoughts can do is that they can actually create a lot of suffering and trigger the amygdala a lot. When we don't, when we use very calming language like I am connected to everyone and to everything, it doesn't really reach the part of the brain that feels I'm not connected. <laughs> to everyone and everything and convince it otherwise, that part of the brain, unfortunately, was formed before we developed. It doesn't understand words. It understands experiences. So what, it, what would change it is restoring really robust affiliations with other people, experiences that disconfirm the early emotional beliefs about ourselves, which are based on actual experiences. So that's a long-winded way of saying the only way to change our beliefs about ourselves that are held in the unconscious is to have an experience where that disconfirms the earlier experiences. 
Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. That's helpful. Thank you. Thank you. So last two quick ones, Mark and Amy. Okay, Mark, I'm muting you. Hey, thank you. Um, I moved, I live in Beacon. I've been here for three years and we've been in solitary, right? Mm. So I packed up a lot of my, all the Dhamma books that I had. There were too many. And I've been dealing with, I think it's called Moha in Pali. Yeah. Yeah. Is that right? It's right. Okay. Um, so this, this sort of like fuzzy mindedness, you're, when you're alone, you're forced to confront yourself with yourself and there's no mediation with a sutta or somebody's interpretation of that or what have you. So it's been a really, I, I don't know if I speak for anyone else, a really mind blowing time uh, to have the tools that you and other teachers have, you know, bestowed. Because without it, I would have gone batshit uh, a long time ago. Um, <laughs> so, but here's my but, but here's my comment and response to what you asked before. I would love to see people on 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 New Year's Eve um, because I don't see people. I have two cats. Mm. One one is completely calm and the other one is i need i need i need um it would be great to actually spend time leaving the zoom chat open um if nothing else than to facilitate just chats and talks and how do you feel about you know what's going on and where are you and you know is that tough um because I've never made it to the New Year's Eve gatherings because they were always in Brooklyn, which meant from Jersey City, where I lived, I had to traverse, you know, piles of drunken idiots mm. to get there. So if that's a plea for um, community, uh, that would be my ask. Um you know, and also, you know, I want to say I want to thank you a lot for a couple of good three, five years or more of helping to pull away the the spider webs and, um, you know, sort of cut to the quick, which is not always painless, mm. but uh, totally necessary. So, thank, thank you. you. I'll definitely keep in mind the. Um, the uh, if there's a way to create a community experience, whether to do breakdown groups or to to uh, find a way to organize it so that uh, there can be a community experience uh, as part of it, definitely we'll we'll give that thought. Thank you. And uh, Amy asked to unmute. Hi. Hi there. <laughs> um, and just to kind of piggyback off of what Mark was saying, um, another option, it sort of informal impromptu option might be um, this uh, 
on the Facebook live video of this in the comment section, anyone who might want to meet in WhatsApp on like a video uh, chat, like a group, just to kind of um, fellowship or whatever. Mm. Uh, so you're talking about experience. It, you know, the, 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 the part of our brain that sort of re- um, uh, drew a blank there that heals from these early traumatic experiences of abuse or neglect or whatever. Um, we, we heal that with new experiences that affirm and validate. So my question is, these experiences real or imagined they can be both. They can be both. Part of the work of um, Daniel B. Brown, David Elliott, uh, Deirdre Fay, um, and quite a few others um, in the work Attachment Disturbances in Adults showed that while, of course, the primary way of changing or uh, healing attachment wounds and disturbances uh, and traumas is through having experiences that invalidate the earlier patterns of childhood, the abandonments of childhood, but that it doesn't have to only be that. It can also be through visualizations. And so what they did is they gave um, a group of people with PTSD uh, the ideal parent protocol where the individual would who had uh, a pattern of long-term emotional abuse or abandonment of childhood they would have them visualize ideal parents that would have been there for them during the most painful times of their childhood and just visualizing what these people how what their countenance would be how they'd be available reliable caring, um, and just through visualizing, there was substantial improvement and ease, uh, diminution of PTSD symptoms, which are, of course, can be easily tracked. I mean, in terms of both anything from hypervigilance, panic attacks, dissociative episodes, and so forth. So um, visualizations work. Do they work as effectively as the real the real McCoy? The, you know, really having robust affiliations with people that are emotionally soothing, calm, appreciative, and expressing delight at us? Uh, probably not. But that doesn't mean they're ineffective. In fact, they are effective. Just it would take a little bit longer. Uh, ideally, one would have both. You know, so somebody who's um, has extremely anxious attachment or um, any cluster disorder, A, B, or C, or would have, has any um, emotional distress uh, as a result of early attachment wounds, would first find some form of group or therapeutic support 
but also do the visualizations as well to supplement. And in so doing, we'd have the best, um, the best opportunity to essentially heal those wounds, which are generally stored in the right orbital frontal and, and inferior temporal lobe. Great, thank you. Very welcome. So I can already smell the dinner is about to be consumed. I just might be hallucinating it, but it's time for me to say good night and I will see you all most likely on New Year's Eve. Pay attention, hopefully, if you'd like to the either the Facebook page or the Dharma Punks website or look out for the email that I send out weekly and I'll let you know if there's any class or meeting that happens before then. But right now, I think I'll take a, a, a 14 day break and reconnect with you on New Year's Eve. So thank you all for your uh, stopping by, your kind support, and I'll see you then. Bye. Mm -hmm.